This series of the For All Mankind podcast is brought to you by the Gardner Family Apothecary. Caring for your sensitive skin with the Elav and Ovel solutions, proudly made in Ireland since 1934. From Ovel Silcox Base to Elav's Sensitive Beauty, their unique formulations provide low irritancy, cruelty-free and sustainable skincare solutions for you, your family and your sensitive skin. You can keep up to date with all of the news, discounts and exclusive offers across Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Gardner Family Apothecary. Visit GardnerFamilyApothecary.com for free next day delivery with purchases over €25. Euro. Hello and welcome to For All Mankind, the podcast. Today's bonus episode for Mother's Day is with a woman who can only be described as a powerhouse, inspirational, fearless and formidable. She's an author, women's health advocate and a mum to Amelia and Dara. It's Vicky Phelan. Hi Vicky. Hi Pamela, how are you? I'm good, how are you doing? Good, good thanks, good to do. So Vicky, many of us would know your name and your face now from the cervical check crisis in 2018 and your, I suppose, unrelenting desire for justice um, surrounding it but you yourself as a person like you were a mother a daughter and a sister um, and I said at the start you know you're a mum to Amelia and Dara and I suppose everything you do it's going to keep there in, in your heart yes absolutely I mean the whole reason um, I kind of took on what I took on back in 2018 between the court case and trying to get access to drugs that would give me more time is for my children really because um, you know at the time back in 2018 my kids were so that's about three years ago 12 and like seven you know there's yeah. five and a half years between my two kids and you know I suppose one of my children my daughter Amelia has had uh, you know an awful lot of um, you know almost as much hardship if not more to be quite honest than me in her very short life and she's a you know very rare medical condition which you know me as the mammy you know I, I have always managed her condition uh, more so than my husband um, and uh, you know because I'm so uh, kind of good at researching and into medical stuff really um, you know I'm the person who, who really is there for her so I suppose that really was what was driving me to be quite honest Pamela was well who's going to you know who's mm-hmm. going to look after Amelia as well as you know or advocate for her really because that's what I've been doing for Amelia uh, as well as I have been you know and so they're the things that drove me really to do what I did because I wanted a to get more time with my children um, and b really you know if I wasn't going to be here to make sure that there was a, a health system uh, left behind that was better than what I uh, encountered. Yeah and you know, your start to your motherhood journey, um, you suffer from postnatal depression with both Amelia mm. and Dara. And yeah. I, I heard you saying that you act, you, can, you kept it to yourself. You kind of shared it only with your mum and your sister at the time. Um, but I suppose after kind of at the tail end of it, you've shared your story of your postnatal depression. Yeah, so I suppose at the very start when I got postnatal depression on my daughter, uh, you know, none of my friends were having children at that stage. I was probably, I was 30 when I had Amelia and, uh, you know, my say my best friends, um, my best friend didn't get 
married until she was 32 or 33. So, you know, my, my, my closest friends wouldn't have had children at the same time as me. I was kind of one of the first ones. So I had no one really to, to kind of, you know, talk yeah. to her really about this, you know. And I, I do remember asking my mother, and mum had five of us, and sure, you know, she's a sure I can't remember, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, you know, a lot of it I put down to, obviously, because I'd had a horrendous pregnancy, you know. Um, it was discovered during my pregnancy that there was something wrong with my baby. And I had to have an amniocentesis, and I was, you know, in hospital for the, kind of the last four or five weeks of the pregnancy, uh, because I didn't really know at that stage what was going to be wrong with her. So it was, it was very, you know, the last number of weeks of the pregnancy were horrible, um, and it's all the stuff that you imagine in your head. You know, I knew there was something mm-hmm. going to be wrong with my baby, but because I didn't know what it was going to be, you think the worst, of course. Yeah. And then when we did know what it was going to be, and because it's so rare, she's got congenital toxoplasmosis. Um, you know, nobody could really tell us wh- how she was going to be, you know. I remember asking the question, well, is she going to be okay? Is she going to be able to see? And, you know, she's going to have ten fingers and ten toes. And they were all kind of saying, well, you know, we don't really know because they'd never had a situation where um, they had a baby that was born uh, with this condition and knew about it from when she was uh, in utero. That's still the case. And Amelia's 15 years of age. They still haven't had a child um, diagnosed in the womb uh, since then. So that'll tell you how rare it is. But... Yeah. You know, I suppose it was kind of nearly natural that I would hit postnatal depression. Um, but of course, I didn't know that because it's your first baby and you don't really know what to expect anyway, do you? You know, no. um, and I suppose by the time I realized what it was, uh, I, I was kind of feeling very guilty, to be quite honest, Pamela, because I had this sick child and I thought to myself, how can I be moaning about not, you know, loving this child and resent and I did resent her and and, and, I th- and I knew that wasn't normal but I wouldn't tell anybody because I thought they'd judge me to be quite mm-hmm. honest you know so but I didn't realize that all of these feelings are tied up in you know what's called postnatal depression and that these feelings are something that come up when you are you know kind of literally in the depths of it because as soon as I got treatment for it and as soon as, star- as I started feeling better those feelings went away I didn't resent my child and I was able to love her, but it really took a long time. Um, so by the time I had my son, uh, I was very nervous. Um, I mean, that's why the, there's two reasons why there's such a gap between my two. So there's nearly six years between them. One is because I had to wait for at least two years to get pregnant again in case I um, passed on this uh, toxoplasmosis to another baby. And two, um, I was just very reluctant to get pregnant again because I did not want to get uh, postnatal depression again. And I knew from everything I read that there was a very high chance that I'd get it on another child. So, you know, the only thing that kind of made me go again a second time really was I didn't want Amelia to be an only child, to be quite honest. And I kind of missed out really on having a normal baby, if you know what I'm saying, you know, to be able to go in and have my baby and come home. Amelia was in hospital for the first few weeks of her life and from the very day she was born we were given her medication, injections, it was a roller coaster of you know, medical appointments really for the first two years of her life. So it wasn't normal, but that was normal for me. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. So um, it did happen again on Dara, but it wasn't as bad because I knew what to look out for the second time, you know, so it definitely didn't get as bad and I knew um, how to deal with it much better. Um, but I didn't really speak about it with my friends um, really until, you know, later on, I suppose, as you know, after I came out of it. Yeah. You know, I, I remember with um, Alice having, not realising, I suppose, at the time, having really bad postnatal um, anxiety, like really bad, and just kind of presumed this is the norm. 
um, like just not sleeping at all and just watching her in case anything happened to her and just like you said kind of like always thinking the worst thing was going to happen and with Peter it was like it was like a totally different experience it was I didn't have any of that like there was it was nothing and it was it took me now to looking back and going that wasn't normal those thoughts Mm. in my head all of that being so anxious around her was just obviously some of it's new moment you've been left home with a child that you're to keep alive but there was a (laughs) lot of it that was outside the norm you know that that was beyond what you know is would be i think probably normally accepted um but yeah it's it's often till you're kind of out of the cloud of it that you can kind of realize what you've actually come through yeah and yeah uh, it's so true and what type of mum would you say you are vicky I was thinking about it last night when I was looking at your questions and I thought to myself, I kind of wrote down a few things that I thought, you know, um, you know, the type of mother I think I am. And then I thought, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to ask Amelia. So I rang Amelia, my daughter. She's 15 now and she's very brutally honest. She's exactly like her mother, Pamela. So I thought, you know, she'll tell me exactly what type of a mother she thinks I am um, and she won't be holding back. So I asked her and actually what she said was exactly what I thought myself. So isn't that nice? So basically... I thought the two first words I put down um, about the type of mother I think I am, tough but fair. And that's exactly what Amelia said. She said, yeah, ma'am, you're kind of tough, but you're, you're, you're actually fair. You know, so I would be hard on my kids. Um, at times, I suppose I'm a strict enough mother about, you know, like, I suppose, you know, different things, particularly, I suppose, with Amelia. Um, it's screen time because of her eyesight. So, mm-hmm. you know, not to be on the screens all the time, to give her eyes a break. Treats, the usual, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But also just... I would be tough on them um, about not um, kind of, uh, how would I put it, to be grateful for what they have and not to be greedy and to be kind and to say thank you. All of those things that I think are really important. So I suppose, yeah, that's, that's exactly how she saw me. But also, I, I, she said to me, you're very thoughtful, ma'am. She said, you put in a lot of effort into our birthdays and Christmas presents. And I really was glad to hear her say that because I do... One thing I really do, um, you know, put an awful lot of effort into, and it's not just my kids, you know, my parents, my friends. I make a big deal about birthdays because I think they're so important, you know. So I'd always, um, you know, tune into what somebody says, and if they mention that they'd like something, I will remember it and, you know, mm-hmm. produce it at a birthday. Um, and my daughter would know the same thing about me that, you know, I, I tune into what she's into. So, you know, Christmas, she mentioned, you know, a couple of authors. She loves reading like me. Um, so, you know, I would have gotten her some of those books and she didn't know they were coming. You know, they were kind of uh, surprises, you know. Yeah. So it's just to make those efforts. And then the other thing she said, which I'd kind of forgotten because they're older now, she said, um, and I was delighted, actually. She said, you're, you're, you're really um, creative. I said, no, I'm not. I said, I can't draw a, a stick person. And she said, no, not like that. She said, you um, you know, I remember when we were smaller, you, were br- you used to bring us to loads of different places. Um, and you used to kind of, you know, make things fun. And I was there, Jesus, I don't remember. You know, I, I would never have thought of it. As, it's funny. The way she looked at it and the way I looked at what I did are to- totally different. 
I'm delighted that she saw that that has been creative and fun because for me, it, it, there was a purpose to what I was doing. We had no money at the time. Jim was out of work. I was the only one working and we were struggling to pay bills. So I would always try and find places to go that A, were free, didn't have a, a, a you know a, a, an admission fee to go in. I'd bring a picnic with us. Of course, they thought that was great. But it was because I didn't have the money to buy, you know, go into the, shop, the, the restaurants or the cafes. Yeah. And I'd always try and find places that we could go that were different, um, where they could just run around and I'd be able to to sit down and have five minutes to myself but you know it's interesting the way children look at it so it's great to think that you know she saw that as a uh, for me it was kind of um you know uh, for myself as much as for the kids you know just to get a kind of go somewhere different and let them play and run run wild you know but for me to get five minutes to myself as well it's truth there that it's the simple things that they remember it's the it's the moments that you know out in the woods or out in the beach that are free to us, you know, that actually are they're the moments that you're creating these really rich memories for your kids. Absolutely. And I suppose as, um, you know, w- when I was diagnosed with cancer, then that took on a new meaning for me. It was really important then for me to do as much as I could with them to make those memories, you know. So I was so glad that I had put in that effort when they were smaller. Um, that, you know, they did remember all those things. And then, you know, when I got diagnosed with cancer, you know, for me, it was really important then to spend as much time with them um, to make the memories because that's what they will have, you know, at the end of the day. And on your cancer journey so far, you know, you have kind of pinpointed certain milestones though that you want to get to. And it was like communions mm. and confirmations and it was Dara's 10th birthday was and was one of them. And that was recently. Um, How was that bittersweet for you to be over in Maryland, you know, getting further treatment, but missing the birthday at the same time? Yeah, I knew that was going to be hard for me because I've never missed a birthday. You know, I've never missed any of my kids' birthdays. And that was go. And I knew coming over here I was going to miss the birthday. You know, I, I was hoping, I suppose, at the start when I came over here that they might get over for Easter. But, you know, that looks like that's not going to happen. It'll be nearer the summer, I'd say, hopefully, before they get here. But I knew I was going to miss the birthday. And I'd kind of made peace with it because I thought, I'm a very rational person, thank God, Pamela, because otherwise, you know, I think I'd have lost it a long time ago. I'm able to rationalise things in my head um, and make peace with it. So I suppose I kind of thought to myself, well, it's either I stay at home and be at home for Dara's 10th birthday and I won't be here for any more of them. And that was that would have been the reality if I'd stayed at home, to be quite honest, mm-hmm. because if I had went on the palliative chemotherapy, you know, the most I'd get would be 8 to 12 months so that, you know, and my cancer came back last November so I mean that would that I would be well gone by you know November December 2021 Mm -hmm. so I just thought you know that that's how I rationalized things I thought well you know yeah okay I can be at home for his 10th birthday but I won't say any more of them or I can come over here and miss his 10th birthday and see his 11th and his 12th and 13th birthdays do you know what I mean yeah and that's that's how I make peace with it myself um, but I was obviously upset on the day, um, and so was you know, Dara was fine on the day, but it was the night before Jim said um, that when he was going to bed, he kind of got upset about me not being at home for his birthday. But then on the day, he was fine. So you know, your kids, once they get presents and cake and there's a fuss made of them, they're selfish creatures, you know, once they're a fuss being made of them, they're grand. So he was fine then on the day, and... Uh, 
you know, we made an executive decision then that uh, Jim had to go down anyway to look after his mother um, for that weekend. He has to do one weekend a month. His mother has Parkinson's, so him and his siblings have to take turns kind of staying with her. Um, so he kind of organised it that it would be the weekend of Dara's birthday that he'd have to do it, and he dropped the kids off at my parents' to kind of make another bit of a fuss over him, and Mam had another cake for him. So he he had a lovely weekend, you know. So I don't feel one bit guilty, you know. Your your own mum, um, you know, you shared there that she, you know, she had five of her own kids, and mm. you know, she's looking after, you know, your your kids too, as you know, all the grandparents um, love doing, love spoiling them. Um, what's your relationship like with your own mum? Um, yeah, I, I mean, we have a great relationship now. Um, I, I, it's funny, like, I suppose, because I'm the oldest of five kids, and I'm very similar to my own mother, and my mother would have been the same, tough but fair, you know, she was that, so, you know, I didn't lick it off a stone, I suppose, that type of, you know, mothering uh, that I do is very similar to my own mother's. But I suppose where I differ from my mother is I would be a far more affectionate with my children than my mother was with us. So, I mean, I hug and kiss and tell my children I love them all the time. And I've always been like that ever before I had cancer. I've always been kind of, you know, touchy-feely with my kids where my mother wasn't. But, you know, my mother wasn't like that. I think it was a generational thing, but also, mm-hmm. you know, she never got it from her mother. So she kind of struggled with it with us. Um, like, Mam always would have... Know, she'd make sure she you'd be fed and you'd, you'd be warm and you you know but she wouldn't be the type to kind of give you the hugs and the kisses you know whereas now she has I think when grandchildren came along that kind of softened her so she's much better with the grandchildren than she would have been with us which is lovely to see you know yeah. but um, I suppose my relationship with my mother um, is much better now as I've gotten older and I think you know when I became a mother I think I realised how hard it probably was for her because I knew how hard it was for me, you know. Mm-hmm. And she had five of us and she was very young. Like, Mam was 19 when she had me. So she was very a very young mother. And, you know, wouldn't have had a huge amount of help from her own mother, to be quite honest, because back in the day, you kind of you made your bed and you lied in it, you know. That yeah. was kind of it. Um, so, no, I, I have a great relationship with my mother now. Um, we get on very well. Uh, it, it's funny, I look at my sister and my mother. My sister's the youngest, so there's 11 years between us, and there's three boys in the middle. And my sister would tell my mother far more than I would ever tell her. I don't know, there's something about being the oldest, I think. Yeah, I don't know, you just... So I wouldn't tell her as much as my sister would, but we still have a very good relationship, you know? Yeah. Um, I think she wor- because I know Mam worries. Mam is a terrible worrier. So like particularly with my cancer, like there are things I don't tell her, and and she knows I don't tell her, <laughs> and she gives out to me. But I say to her, well, Mam, I don't want you worrying. There's no need for you to be worrying. So I'm not going to tell you certain things if I don't need to. What's the point? Do you know? So, you know, I, I, she she gives out to me for that. But I'm doing it pr- to protect her because she doesn't need to be worrying about things like that. You know. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think as a mother, regardless of what age your children are, you always worry. That's oh, it. Yeah. Um, completely and you know my kids are very young and I you know I worry about them and I, you know all from all different aspects of them and then I yeah. think about I think about my own mum and like when I was in college or um, mm. you know all of these scenarios I haven't had to face yet and I go oh my god the worry that that woman must have had yeah, about me that's in, it. or even when I was working in Dublin and she'd ring me and you know I if I had done a, a night course. Um, I must have been like 29, I think, I had done this night course. 
And she'd ring me. She was like, you better be getting a taxi home now, Pam. You better not be getting public transport to 10 o'clock at night. I was like, Mom, she's like, I'll give you extra money if it means you get a taxi oh, home. Oh, she got lover. Do you know, it's just that worry never stops. I, like, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. No. And as mums, like, you know, as we're saying there, like we, we worry about the kids and we worry about, our, you know, bringing them places and all that. And the priority like in in a house um for me you know it's like the kids will always come first and you know mm. um but yet as as you know like it's so important to look after your mum mm. first you know like you know is it whether it's our mental health or physical health um but we tend to it's it's we tend not to um mm. Yeah, I, I hear you. Uh, I mean, I think I would be have been guilty of that myself for a number of years. And I suppose I learned because I suppose I've, I've, I've suffered from depression over the years, you know, after the postnatal depression with Amelia, um, you know, when I came out of that. Uh, and in between my two pregnancies, I would have gotten, you know, depression rather than postnatal depression. So I've struggled with depression on and off for, I suppose, for about 10, 12 years, maybe. And I know myself that um, I learned, I suppose, after a while that I needed to focus on me and, and you know, put time into me and myself and my my um, uh, time for me, really, in order to be a better mother, because I, I if I didn't, I found that, you know, by focusing solely on the kids um, and, and ignoring myself and not kind of looking after myself, I would go down much quicker. So I suppose because I've struggled with depression for a number of years since I've become a mother, I've had to become a little bit more, and, and I hate the word selfish, but and sometimes, you know, some people would look at it like that. It's not selfish. You know, you have to look after mm-hmm. yourself if you want to be a good mother, and, and I've learned that the hard way. So, you know, my kids know full well, like, if I'm having a bath and the door is locked, do, do not come near me. Do you know what I mean? That's my time for myself. And I think it's important that we teach our kids that, that, like, mammy has to have time to herself as well. Because, you know, we forget that when we become mothers, that you often lose yourself, you know, and who you were and what you liked doing when you became a mother. And why should you? You know what I mean? You're still a person as well as being a mother. So, I mean, I, I started, you know, to look after myself and, you know, getting out for a walk if I needed to get out for a walk or go for a bath. And when I'm doing those things, the kids know to leave me alone, you know, and that that's my time for me. So, um, you know, I, I think we need to prioritise that as women and uh, for, because we'll be better mothers as a result of it. Absolutely. And my own experience is that, um, you know, when my mom passed away, that although she was ill, I suppose it still came as quite a shock and I just stopped moving. Um, and we were in a lockdown as well. So I literally moved from like the kitchen to the sitting room, to the sitting room, to, to bed, to bed, back to the yeah. kitchen. And that was my movement. And um, one day Ben said to me, said, Pam, you're, you're, you're not, you know, you've, you've kind of gone in on yourself and you've, you've literally stopped, you know, like going for your walk or going outside, playing with the kids. And I kind of was like, yeah. So I said, I kind of, it kind of, you know, it went into my head as, as it does and it kind of was growing a thought and I said, yeah, I'm actually, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm surviving, but I'm not thriving as a mother right now. I'm just, I'm just, you know, this is the base level of, you know, of, of, of accepting the norm. Um, and I found uh, a local trainer, Joe Connor, from Nicest Fitness and they do really, really early in the morning live classes 
at half six. And um, anyone that knows Joe, he's super enthusiastic um, at half six in the morning. And it was the best thing I've ever done for myself. Um, generally, the kids are asleep, but if they're awake, they, you know, Alice is down here and she totally understands that Jojo exercise is on. That's like, she thinks it's like a TV show, I think. Yeah. Um, and I do my exercise and she'll just play around me and she'll be, she'll watch Jojo doing his piece. And it sets me up like physically and mentally for the day. Like it's yeah. like getting a burst of energy in the morning and it's like you can take on anything that comes at me for the day. It doesn't matter what type of day it happens or what kid does what. It's yeah, you're just it could But look what you're teaching your me. kids to. You're teaching your children, they can see that you're doing exercise, mm-hmm. uh, the importance of exercise and they will grow up knowing how important it is. Do you know what I mean? So you're also teaching your kids lessons as well. Yeah, exactly. Um and at the moment, you are over in Maryland, mm-hmm. and you're taking part in an, immune, an immunotherapy drug trial. Is that right? Yep, that's yeah. correct. And you know, you were saying there earlier that you research a lot in um, in the area of medicine and, and the medical arena, um, and advocating for yourself and your own health. As we we're saying there, you know, we've to advocate within our own families for our own time, but also you've learned that advocating for yourself within the health system is something that has to be done. Absolutely. 110%, to be quite honest. I've learned... I suppose I've had a long, long history of advocating for myself within the health system. Going back to, you know, when I had a very bad car accident at the age of uh, 18. So, you know, I learned very quickly back then that, uh, you know, I had to speak up for myself um, and then my daughter was born with a rare condition. So I've been advocating, you know, against the health system, I suppose, for quite, quite a long time, ever before my cancer came along. So for me, it was quite normal that I would do that and that I would ask questions and that I would, you know, come up with um, uh, options uh, that I would present to my doctors. And I, I never for one minute thought that <laughs> I'd come up against resistance, you know, but mm-hmm. but I did, unfortunately, uh, quite a lot. Um but I suppose I learned, uh, you know, to, I know my body better than anybody else. And that has always been my driving force, really. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, I, I suppose. I, and the thing is, Pamela, I'm quite comfortable with confrontation and I'm quite comfortable with, um, you know, having it out with somebody. And I know that for some people listening, they're not comfortable with confrontation or they would you know, absolutely hate the thought of asking their doctor a question and, you know, uh, not getting the answer that they want or, you know, maybe the doctor kind of not being very understanding. Um, but what I say to people is you have to do this. You know, you have to do this for yourself because if you don't, nobody else will do it for you. And, you know, I, I often kind of think, you know, I try and use simple analogies that people will understand. Like if you're getting a, a new floor put down in your kitchen and you're paying a lot of money for this, you know, fabulous new uh, timber floor and you're not happy with it or, you know, the carpenter makes a mess of the job, by God, you wouldn't leave the carpenter away with it. So why, why do we not do the same for our health? You know, you know, you only get one life, you know. So mm-hmm. I would always say to people, like, if you're not happy with, with you know, whatever your, you know, your doctor is telling you or the type of um, regime that your doctor is putting on you on and you want to, you've heard of another type of treatment that might be better, you know, you should be able to ask your doctor questions. And if you're not happy with the answers, you know, find another doctor. I mean, it's as simple as that. Um, 
I mean, I've moved doctors a number of times because, uh, you know, I've had uh, run-ins over, over the years and, you know, I don't see anything wrong with that. We do it for insurance. We do it for, yeah. you know, getting three different quotes for different things. Why would health be any different? Yeah, absolutely. I, I changed GP. Um, I had asked um, for... I wanted a simple blood test done to see mm. was there any hormonal issues that would prevent me from conceiving. And she said, yeah. um, oh, do you know, let's not get caught up in that. You know, just, you know, don't don't bother yourself with, with that information, basically. And I just walked out of there and went down the road to another and registered with another GP because I just yeah. felt, well, if, if this is where you are, you know, I just don't feel like we're on the same page. And, yeah. um, you know, even though I feel like at the time like I actually researched that GP and felt like she you know as a, as a woman a woman of similar age to myself and I you know I felt like she would be a good advocate for me and but yeah you we can't take and we can't you know even if they do um investigations and your instinct is still telling you otherwise you know there is no harm in getting a second opinion from a, a different no, doctor absolutely or, that's it um, and I mean, doctors shouldn't feel threatened by patients getting second opinions. You know, it should be norm, normal. You know, that, that, mm-hmm. that this should become far more normal and more accepted. You know, I think it bothers me that certain doctors would feel threatened by it. Why, why are they feeling threatened by it? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. What changes, Vicky, would you like to see in women's health in Ireland? Oh, Jesus. Oh God, the list would be a mile long. I mean, for a start, just to for for women to be uh, accepted, um, that are heard, listened to more, because I think often we're 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 dismissed. You know, we're we're often dismissed, um, particularly when it comes to you know, like women have a much higher pain threshold than men. I mean, it's been proven. Research has shown that. Um, so if a woman comes to you with a you know a pain, generally you know you should be taking them seriously because women generally don't tend to complain unless it's very bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's one simple thing. Um, another thing I read about actually, I, I read a really good book. Of course, can't think of the name of it now, um, but it was a doctor who wrote the book about the difference between women and men, particularly when it comes to one example she gave was heart attacks. Women present differently for heart attacks than men, yet. Doctors are trained to look for the signs of heart attacks for men. So when women come with uh, totally different symptoms and they're having a heart attack, because they don't display the symptoms that doctors have been trained to look for, they're dismissed. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. things like that, that um, you know, they're very basic things. Uh, dosage levels, that was another thing that this doctor wrote about. You know, dosage levels for drugs are always uh, based on men's level. Uh, and, and obviously men know more than with alcohol, as we know. Men have a higher tolerance for, you know, the amount of drink that they can take compared to women. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's the same with drugs. So often dosage levels are based on uh, trials, you know, when they're looking at dosage levels, they, they, they base it on a, ma- a male dose. But that's far too high often for women. So sometimes, you know, drugs may not work on a woman. But, you know, often the problem is they're too high because, you know, she's a woman. So there's certain things that really women are dismissed at, from the outset in a lot of very basic things so I would like to see a lot more woman-centered care um, and particularly when it comes to our bodies um, and our reproductive organs um, because I suppose that's where you know I've been failed by the system you know I would really love to see far more women involved in the care of women because I mean by the majority of gynecologists in this country are men yeah and I'm sorry but you know no amount of qualification and training is going to 
uh, give men an insight into what a woman's body is like, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, you know, and, and the gynecological cancers as well. It's, um, mm. I mean... Primarily men. Yeah. <laughs> and as well, but even like the screening for gynecological cancers. So, you know, obviously we've got the cervical check and the issues that were with that. But if you have uh, like like the BRCA gene, for instance, and you're looking for, so that the percentage of the population will not be carry that, for them to even get screening, for those women who could well, potentially could have breast or ovarian or both of those cancers, um, to, the, the, and there's I suppose the, the research would tell the doctors that you know to find to have a screening, you wouldn't find almost like enough of of the cohort to justify the screening, which to me isn't really good enough. I think if you were to save one woman, um, that's enough to have a you know for, for the percentage yes, of the population that we're yeah. talking about. Like it is a small yeah. number of women, but if if they're you know percentage is so high that they're carrying this gene then surely like you know it it, isn't like their illness is already flagged i just can't my brain cannot understand how they're not more care is offered to them rather than the care that is offered to them is to just is to have a mastectomy and have a hysterectomy and that's the care um so that's you know yeah, and you see, you know, they don't look at the... And this is... I, I'm totally on the same page as you because, you know, they think... Often what I find that is lacking in our in, in, in any health system, and it's not just in Ireland, is the side effects from treatment are far worse than the treatment itself. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, having a hysterectomy with it in and of itself, you know, it's, it, it's, a, it's a tough um, procedure to have. The recovery is quite long from it. But the side effects from having a hysterectomy are hit, just go straight into menopause. Yeah. You know, you're not going to be able to have children again. Um, and like particularly with women who contract like cervical and ovarian cancer, it's generally young women. I mean, I was lucky by the time I got cervical cancer that I'd had my two children and I was not, was, wasn't planning on having any more. So I didn't have to get my head around uh, being thrown into early menopause Um and not having been able to have more children, I didn't have that part to get over. But I know of plenty of women who, you know, mourned literally, you know, had to mourn for those children they couldn't have, um, and in some cases, women who had had no children by the time they got cervical cancer. And there isn't enough thought put into the 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 grief and the loss and the side effects that women go through um, from the from the treatment that is there to cure them from a particular cancer, yeah. but which brings with it a whole host of other problems um, that really are not supported, you know? And Vicky, the cervical check um, and the report that Dr. Gabriel Scali um, is working, well, he, that he created and the recommendations that he made, for me, um, as just a lay person and you know reading the news to me the the two kind of most important things from that were that the the labs were going to be brought home isn't that the testing was going to happen in ireland mm-hmm. and that hasn't happened how do you feel about the delay in the recommendations being fulfilled Sure, not happy. I suppose, you know, what, what I have to say from the outset, though, is that um, one of the big positives out of uh, the investigation into what happened in cervical check uh, for us compared to other scandals is that, you know, Gabriel Scali's report 
uh, included a, a follow-up so that he was taken on to oversee the implementation of the recommendations from his, for, from his report. And this was a whole new departure uh, for Ireland because in previous scandals, like Port Leash, for example, mm -hmm. where all those babies died, yeah. you know, there was a report came out of that because I've met Roisin Malloy, you know, who was kind of instrumental in all of that on a number of occasions. And, you know, I remember Roisin saying to me, do not accept a HICWA investigation, she said, because nothing, you know, you might get a nice fancy report, but it'll sit in the shelf and there'll be no impl no implementation of the recommendations because she said we have yet to see any implementation of the recommendations that came out of the report into what happened to Port Leash, and that's still the case six years later. Whereas with the cervical check um, investigation that Dr Scally carried out, he has overseen pretty much most of the uh, implementation of uh, recommendations that came out of his report. Um, now there are still obviously some that still have to be implemented and the two big ones for me are mandatory open disclosure and the patient safety bill and they come within the remit of the Department of Health interestingly enough and they're the ones who are dragging their heels with this. I mean that's why we came out there about a week and a half ago when we found out that Gabriel Scali wasn't being engaged yeah. to oversee the remainder. So that is why we have um, kind of come out to say that that needs to happen. So look, the, long the short of it is, Gabriel will be engaged to oversee the remainder of the recommendations, which is great. But, you know, as always, it's the important ones that are left till last, uh, you know, as I said, with mandatory open disclosure and patient safety. But with the cervical check itself, you know, the HSE, in fairness to them, have implemented most of their recommendations from their side. And yes, overall, you know, we, we are quite happy with, uh, you know, the changes that have been put in place in cervical check. There's a lot more oversight. There is new positions that have been created to make sure that there is less chance of... Um, you know, uh, so like from a risk management point of view, so that, that there is oversight on all sides, uh, that you know, it's not just one person making a decision. Um, um, and we obviously now have HPV testing, yes. which is more accurate at picking up or detecting more cancers than a smear test, particularly the high-risk strains of HPV. Uh, we now have a HPV vaccine extended to boys, which is really important because not only are boys you know, carriers of HPV virus and can pass it on to girls, but there are other HPV cancers that people don't realise that boys can contract and uh, get a particular cancer themselves, like a throat, throat cancer, anal cancer, penile cancer. So it's really important that boys are vaccinated as well. It's not just for girls. Um, and, you know, the development of the cervical screening laboratory at home, um, you know, that has been uh, mooted uh, for the Coombe Hospital. But again, COVID has put everything yeah. on hold. So it'll probably be, you know, a couple of years further down the line than we would have hoped. But, you know, I really, really hope um, that is one of the big things that for me um, needs to happen, that we need to bring screening home. Yeah, I mean... As I, as I was saying to you earlier, um, off mic was that, funny enough, I had gotten a smear test yesterday and it was a repeat because this, the initial smear that was done got delayed in the post, um, which, you know, it's not, you, you kind of feel, does that, does that sample have the same kind of priority as a Christmas card? Do you know, it, it kind of was always delayed in the post so it can't yeah. be read. And, and when there's such, at the moment, I suppose there is distrust, um, amongst women going is cervical check okay is this you know can we trust it um and then to kind of to, something to be so flippant oh it got delayed you're kind of like oh okay um so i suppose it's just um it's good to hear from yourself that you know there are the recommendations are being worked through and, and you know there's a, a fair amount of them that have been completed by the hsc 
But I suppose Ireland in general, like we've such a broken past on women's health from kind of the mother and baby's home and we repealed the Eighth Amendment, the cervical check crisis. It's not a good, it's not a, a favourable past that we have for women's health in Ireland. And we both have, you know, you've Amelia and I have Alice. And I think about women's health going forward and, you know, where do we want it to be? What do we, what do we need to do? to protect our girls now going forward? Um, well, I suppose, you know, my daughter is older than your daughter now at this stage. She's 15 and she's very much has uh, her own mind. You know, she's very like me, um, you know, thinks for herself. And uh, I suppose the way I've raised her is to make sure that, you know, she is, uh, you know, in charge of her own body. And, you know, we're very open about conversations in our house about periods. My son has, you know, just gone 10. And, you know, I told him about periods last year and what they are and, you know, that he needs to be, you know, kind to Amelia at that time of the month because, you know, she's in you know, pain and bring her up a hot water bottle and things like that. You know, I think we need to have more open conversations yeah. with our sons as well as our daughters about women's bodies because, you know, boys also need to know that women's bodies are different than theirs and what women go through and what girls go through from a young age that boys are not going through, you know, and they've no understanding of it. And they've no understanding of it because, I mean, I certainly wasn't spoken to, or my brothers weren't spoken to when I was growing up about what happens to girls' bodies, whereas I think we need to be having those conversations now as mothers with kids that, you know, from a young age when they start to understand what's happening. Um, And like with me, I kind of took my cue. Dara came in to me one day and there was a bit of blood in the toilet seat. I'm sure he thought somebody was dying, of course, you know. <laughs> so I thought, well, no, I'm going to tell him what it is now. Amelia was mortified, but I thought, no, he needs to know. He needs to know what this is. So, you know, and once you explain something, you know, there's no point in, make, you know, periods are not shameful. And that's the thing. It's, you know, simple things like that. Yeah. We need to have these conversations uh, at home. And if we're not having them at home, how do you expect things to change wi- in a wider society if we're not having them at home first? So, you know, I think we need to do an awful lot more work ourselves at home um, around, you know, conversations about what, you know, obviously consent is a huge thing, but I mean, it, it, it's more basic, you know, than consent. It's, you know, about women's and boys, you know, girls and boys' bodies being different and what, you know, what happens to girls from a very young age, really. You know, I mean, my daughter started having her periods, you know, she was, I don't think she was even 11. So, you know, we need to be doing those things at home and, and normalising those conversations because, you know, I certainly, you know, would have been embarrassed about having periods, you know, when I was younger. And I don't want my daughter to have that. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Um, because it's not shameful and it's not something that she should be embarrassed about. It's what happens to every woman in this country, you know, um, and, and that's it, you know. Um, so I suppose, you know, if we do it at home and then obviously in schools, I think there needs to be far more um, uh, focus on on. on health issues. I mean, I know they have sexual education now, but I think there needs to be more, uh, you know, discussion of of issues in school as well. You know, like when they're talking about the HPV vaccine, that's a perfect opportunity Absolutely. for them to talk about, you know, yeah. safe sex and, you know, how, uh, you know, the differences between boys and girls. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think I, I have to say, I think I have far more faith in, in our kids that are coming through now um, you know, and when I look at my daughter, like she's well able to speak for herself, and I just think we need to give our ki- kids more confidence to be able to speak up and ask questions, um, and that there's nothing wrong with that, you know. Yeah, and you know, even there in the schools, and you know, talking about periods, and that's where the when the girls drop off from PE class, um, totally, and, and that body confidence, it's it's 
it's actually probably starts from that it's a kind of like there's a change in my body what it's about and that is when they start doubting their development and you know they start kind of hiding coming in on themselves and start kind of hiding hiding yeah. and yeah and PE is, is, is one of the things that is I suppose, research has gone into seeing the drop off in girls involved in sport yeah. and PE because of, of the developmental changes and you know I suppose as, as mothers as well like our role is to kind of carry them with us now and, and and like you said have those open conversations and give our girls confidence that you know they can you know, that their bodies are, are as far stronger than men's and that they will you know carry babies and it's sometimes i kind of think women are have these it's like we have a superpower that we don't actually acknowledge enough um yeah you know that we create other humans um and that's yeah i think that's that needs to be instilled um and that unfortunately probably our, our mothers and our mother's mothers um they were just kind of pushed down from the top for too long and now yeah, it's time to kind absolutely. of use our voices um at home and let and let and let the girls and let ourselves kind of spread our voices wide as as you have and you know thank you for doing all that you have for us <laughs> Yeah, you know, I suppose when I started all of this three years ago, I was only doing it because, I, you know, I spoke out because I knew there were other women, you know, um, on that list at the time of my court case. You know, there was a list of 15 women and I, I, there was no way I could have signed anything, uh, any non-disclosure agreement. Um, and those women would never have found out. And interestingly enough, I only found out recently on that list of 15 women, Ruth Morrissey was one of them. She would never have found out if I had signed that non-disclosure agreement. And uh, another one of the women that was on that list is the woman whose case is settled this week, whose husband has been in court, the case settled yesterday. So, you know, I'm so proud of myself that I didn't uh, give in to that pressure and sign that non-disclosure agreement because none of those women um, or the other 200 and something that has come out since Mm -hmm. would have found out um, about that. And we wouldn't be having these conversations now, um, Pamela. So I'm glad I did it because I think it's opened up a whole national conversation about uh you know how difficult it is to be a woman in this country um and you know i I hope that you know it it not only has it opened up conversation but that things will change as a result of it absolutely and you know i genuinely mean and i think and i think you know the love that comes from ireland for you and from the women of ireland for i suppose you looked out for yourself but you looked out for all of us too and that's you know so thank you Oh, thanks very much, Pamela. No, I do. I really do feel the love. It's lovely. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't be as good as I am over here, to be quite honest, without it. I mean, I honestly, I don't think people realise that, you know, I, I really rely on the messages and the emails and, you know, all the lovely things that I, you know, message, particularly messages, you know, that I get from people. Like in the quiet times when, you know, everyone is asleep at home and I'm five hours ahead over here. That's when I kind of feel sometimes, you know, oh, you know, I'm a little bit homesick and I'll, t- I'll say, oh, I'll look at a few messages now and I'll read a few emails. And that peps me up, you know, I read something lovely that somebody has said about me and it just, it's, 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 you couldn't help but feel good about yourself, you know. <laughs> well, Vicky, I wish you every health and success with your immunotherapy and i know you're going for your third round next week so i hope it goes easy on you but i hope it takes a strong effect on your cancer um and yeah there's just a whole lot of love here waiting for you to come home to us thanks very much pamela and thanks for having me on today it was an absolute pleasure you're very welcome and most importantly happy mother's day oh thank you (laughs) thanks vicky 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of For All Mankind. We will be returning with Series 4 of the podcast in May. In the meantime, if you enjoyed it, please rate, review and subscribe. If you would like to send me a message, please email forallmankind.gmail.com or find me on Instagram. Gardner Family Apothecary are the official sponsors of For All Mumkind podcast, caring for your sensitive skin with the Elav and Ovel solutions, proudly made in Ireland since 1934. From Ovel Silcox base to Elav's sensitive beauty, their unique formulations provide low irritancy, cruelty-free and sustainable skincare solutions for you, your family and your sensitive skin. You can keep up to date with all of their news, discounts and exclusive offers across Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Gardner Family Apothecary. Visit GardnerFamilyApothecary.com for free next day delivery with purchases over €25. Euro.